We had to learn a lot and it was really hard. This is like early days of YouTube, really early days of online video. And I had to build a video transcoding backend. I didn't, even, I didn't know what video transcoding was. I didn't know what a video codec was, but I had to figure it out. I just wish there was a product out there that I could have bought instead of instead of building it myself. And that was really the inspiration for me getting into video technology. I, I felt the need firsthand. There, there's so much work that goes into software development to make software easier, but it's still fun to dig into like a really, really complex problem. Part of what makes video so hard is that it's actually not one hard problem. It's like seven or eight hard problems that all have to work together to make a video play. My name is John Dahl. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Mux. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Labhart, and today how John Dahl created the developer's API, enabling them to build streaming online video. All this and more on Code Story. John Dahl was a philosophy major in college and eventually obtained a graduate degree studying theology. He thought he would go into academia, but he quickly figured out that he needed to make money as well. So he started a dev shop and taught himself how to code. He's married with two kids in their teens and a 21-year-old cat who, believe it or not, is not playful. While he was running his dev shop, John took on a project that required him to build a video transcoder. He learned a lot, and this served as the catalyst for him to pursue building the product that he wished he could have bought while deving this project. This is the creation story of Mux. Mux is a video infrastructure platform for developers. So we solve the hard parts of what it takes to stream video online, um, and we do it via cloud APIs and via open source SDKs. Really, th think of think of something like AWS for video. So it's a suite of infrastructure to help software companies build with video. I, I started Mux because a few a few of us had worked in the world of video technology for a long time. I actually I actually built my very first video project in 2007 um, when I was running a little dev shop uh, back in the Midwest, actually, and we got hired by someone to build a video website. We had to learn a lot, and it was really hard. This is like early days of YouTube, really early days of online video, and I had to build a video transcoding backend. I didn't even, I didn't know what video transcoding was. I didn't know what a video codec was, but I had to figure it out. I just wish there was a product out there that I could have bought instead of instead of building it myself. And that was really the inspiration for me getting into video technology. I, I felt the need firsthand. And I also knew video was going to grow. It was a it was an exciting technology that, you know, 2007 had a lot of growth in front of it. I think today still has a ton of growth in front of it. I would imagine the engineering problem behind building a transcoder was fascinating and terrifying. <laughs> yeah, it's it's um it's a properly hard problem. Which I think is actually really fun. I think sometimes I think there's not enough hard problems left in software. There's so much work that goes into software development to make software easier, which is great. It's important because it makes everyone more efficient. But it's still it's still fun to dig into like a really really complex problem sometimes. And video is one of those. And I think part of what makes video so hard is that it's actually not one hard problem. It's like seven or eight hard problems that all have to work together to make a video play. Tell me about the MVP. So that first product you built, how long did it take you to build? And what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? 
The first product we built was, this is before Mux, was a company called Zencoder that was an API to video encoding. So it was kind of like a small part of what Mux does today. It was just the video transcoding piece. The MVP of Zencoder, it was a couple of systems that we built, a, a kind of distributed job queue where we would take in requests for video transcoding and then a distributed set of workers that would grab jobs off the queue and run a transcoding process and then notify notify the customer that it was done. So I think, I think there's actually a really interesting contrast between the MVPs at Zencoder, my last company, and Mux, the current company. Um, at Zencoder, we built... We built everything in Ruby and Ruby on Rails. It, it was a very pragmatic system. It was like you, you wouldn't think about building a distributed compute platform in, in Ruby, but Ruby is a very fast language to build in. We were able to do a lot with a very small team. We, we built a system that did transcoding for thousands of customers, and I think we were like eight engineers. It worked really well. And then if you push it too far, it would start to run into product challenges. At, at Mux, we kind of did the opposite, where the MVP of our Mux video product, which is sort of the, it, it's an expand, you think of it as, as an expanded version of what Zencoder does. It doesn't just do transcoding, it does everything end to end from video in to video out. So it's video ingest and storage and processing and captioning and transcoding, all that. So the MVP at Zencoder, we, we actually really tried to build the system that we would want at high scale. So we built in a way to be multi-region and multi-cloud from day one. We built as a well-factored set of microservices. Everything was largely built in Go. Um, and it was a really well-designed and well-thought-out system. Er early on, I think that actually probably slowed us down. So early in the life of Mux, we probably would have moved faster if we had just gone the quick and dirty, you know, more monolithic approach. But as we've scaled, we've really benefited from having architected the system well. And I think our velocity now is higher. And I think our velocity in two years is going to be way higher because we, we're not going to have this like, this bad monolith <laughs> that, that, that we're struggling with how to, how to get out of. It's always the balance of like, do we build it, you know, quote unquote, right, right now, or, or do we build it fast, right? And then, and then rebuild and, and refactor and, you know, pay off that technical debt. Exactly. With, with any MVP, you've got to make certain decisions and trade-offs, right? And you, you highlighted some of those. But dive into some of those, or maybe one of those, you know, one of those big, the biggest decisions and trade-off you had to make, and how you coped with that decision. So I think one of the interesting things we did at Mux is we built a system that would handle both on-demand video and live video from day one. At Zencoder, we didn't. Zencoder was built entirely for on-demand video. You know, you'd upload files, they would be, we transcode them, and then you could play them back. And we added live video later to Zencoder, like two or three years in. Live video itself is just exceptionally hard. If you've ever worked with live video, video is hard. Live video is like 10 times harder. Bringing live video into the, uh, an on-demand system was hard. You know, it was, you kind of ideally would architect a system differently for live than for on-demand. And so there were just some challenges with, with that approach. At Mux, we decided to architect a system from day one that would handle both live video and on-demand video, which again, was harder, it took longer, but it was absolutely the right decision. So we have a system that just beautifully supports both modes of video, it's seamless to go back and forth between them, which is really kind of unique. And it was it was a hard challenge, but we, we, just, we just had real conviction that it was the right thing to do. So we were willing to take a little extra time to do it. From that point of the MVP, so let's, let's stay there at the MVP. And you know you've made a lot of architectural decisions, obviously to build the right right way. You know, maybe it slowed you down a little bit, but but you're happy with that now. But from that point, how did you progress the product? 
and, and how did you mature it? And I think to put that in a box, what I'm looking for is how did you build your roadmap and, and how did you go about deciding, okay, this is the next most important thing to build? I think the the primary inputs there are one is just listening to customers, spending a ton of time with customers. And then two is what's our vision. So I think the way we try to do it is one is always be clear about the vision. Know, we want to know where we're going. What do we want this thing to look like in five years? What are what are really important, like competitive strategic advantages that we want to have? So identifying those. And then on the other side, spending a lot of time with customers, understanding their workflows, understanding what they're trying to accomplish. I think those are the main inputs. And then even within there, sequencing is hard. Uh, for, for a product like ours, at least sequencing is one of the more challenging things because there's a lot of things that we want to do. So I think it's just sort of being pragmatic and making good decisions about what do most people need? What's what's a must-have versus nice to have? Sometimes people will ask for things, but they don't really want it. Like I'll, I'll say we've actually shipped features that were hard and Everyone's like, oh, I'm glad you shipped that, but they don't actually use it, which which is something that you want to avoid whenever possible. So I think really understanding why someone wants a feature is really important. You said something that piqued my interest, the, the competitive advantages that we want to have. Tell me a little bit about that, because you, I hear a lot of people talk about, you know, this was our competitive advantage or this is our competitive advantage, but targeting what the competitive advantage is and then going to build it. Tell me about that. I take a lot of influence from a book called Seven Powers by a guy named Hamilton Helmer. I've read a few books on strategy. I tend to think most business books are kind of kind of dumb, like they're they're badly written. Maybe they could be one paragraph you could probably get all the all the insight out of a book. This is a book that's actually really excellent on just sort of the fundamentals of what strict what strategy is. He talks through just a lot of you know, 30 years of study and analysis about seven competitive advantages that companies can have. And everyone who ultimately builds something great is probably tapping into one or more of the seven. So so that's kind of my framework. The the, the way to think about it is you want, you want to build an advantage where you have a benefit. Like you actually have fundamentally a better business because of this. And that shows up in increased market share or increased profitability. It's also, there's also a barrier that means everyone else can't do it. So if, if you design, if you build a great product and you design it well and like, you know, it's it's beneficial to customers, but everyone else can just copy you, then you don't actually have a real strategic advantage. You need to find the places where you can do something that's beneficial and other people can't, or they have trouble if they if they want to replicate that. So for us, the two main advantages, and there's a few others, you know, that we can maybe tap into. One is scale with a really hard technical problem like video. The bigger scale, the scale you operate at, the stronger you are. And that's for a lot of reasons. Uh, it's because of just fundamental, you know, cost reasons and reliability and some of those kind of things. And then it's also because we can build hard features and we can get those same features to thousands of customers. Whereas if we only had 10 customers and we had to build a really hard feature, the feature is just as hard, but we only have, you know, maybe 10 customers who are benefiting from it. it, it, it it's it's much more powerful to to build something for for a larger set of customers. And then the, 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 sec- the second one is product stickiness. If you build a product well, it's it can be it can be hard for people to to want to leave. Even if something came along that was just as good as us, uh, which hopefully will never happen. But if it happened, people are bought in. They're they're are we're deeply integrated into their workflows, and so that gives us a, an advantage of, of stickiness. So let's switch to team then. So how did you go about building your team, and and what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? I think there's kind of two chapters in that story for us. I think when we were really small, and this is probably up to about 20 people, first we we hired people that we'd lo- we mostly hired people that we'd worked with before, either firsthand or secondhand. So we, ha- having worked in the world of video for a long time, we knew who a lot of the best people were. 
and we really just looked to hire the absolute best people. Engineers, that was largely people who were excellent at the craft of video engineering. Uh, but this is true in other, other areas too. We looked to hire the best folks in marketing and sales operations. And so that's what it was early on. It was people we maybe had some relationship with. And then as we got bigger, maybe crossing 40 people, we kept that, but we also started to think really hard about behavior and values and how to execute as a team. And the reason for that is when you're, when you're 10 people, in individuals just have such an outsized impact. Like having an ex exceptional individual is just really, really powerful. But once you get bigger, you actually care a little bit less about the individuals and you care more about how well the teams function, how well people work together. Because execution at scale is a team sport. It's not, not an individual sport. So then I, I kind of know how you're going to answer this next question, but I'm going to ask it like you haven't told me anything about scalability, right? Did you build this to scale efficiently from day one, or have you been fighting this as you grow in any in any sort of way or fashion? I'd say we built a system that we intended to scale from day one, but actually scaling it is something that you do month to month, year to year. So the the, the, the first part is just acknowledging that like if we if we built this product and we ended up with a hundred users, or if we ended up with ten million dollars of revenue or whatever, that would ultimately be a failure. That would ultimately not be what we were aiming at. That could be great for another business or another product, but like we were really intentionally trying to build something uh, at a different sort of scale. Given that, like it was actually less important for us to get qu as quickly as possible to that, that first million dollars, and it's more important for us to get as quickly as possible to that first hundred million dollars. So, so we really set out with that intention of scale. But then actually scaling it, like you really, people in software talk about premature optimization, and there is some truth to that. You you, you can't actually fully optimize until you've actually run something in the wild. Like you, you don't know necessarily what the bottlenecks are going to be or what the issues are going to be that you run into. You can design by by avoiding the things that you know would be challenge, or scale challenges, but you only find some things by by actually doing it. So as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? I think um, two things. I, I guess thinking about it, but bo bo both are kind of human things or people things. One is the team that we've built. I think we have an incredible team. I think we have a really great culture, and that's just really exciting and really motivating. Like I, I, I'm excited to go to work with with these people. The second would be happy customers. I think when you're a startup, there, there's nothing more motivating than customers who are are excited about what you've built, and so. You know the technology is great. Like I think the you know whatever it's 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 great to great to grow revenue and all those kind of things. But really, at the end of the day, it's like how many customers are we making happy, and how how proud am I of our people and our culture? I love that answer. It's so rewarding to build you know great technology, but to build a team to deliver something is incredible, and to watch people grow in doing that is so so rewarding. Yeah. Totally agree. Well, let's flip the script a little bit. So tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. One of the one of the biggest challenges with our business actually is just the breadth of technology that we have to cover. And we went really quickly from one product to two products. So I talked a little bit about the Mux Video product. We actually have a second product, which is called Mux Data, which is an analytics platform for video. So we monitor video at scale for larger streaming platforms. We've been the streaming analytics for like the live stream for three Super Bowls and things like that. We do billions of video streams a month. So these are both really hard problems, actually. Video, streaming video and also 
video analytics. And we, we were about 10 engineers when we had both products, or when we built both products. And so I think we did it for a reason. I, I don't know that I would actually cha make change that decision, but maybe maybe just the, the challenge or the, the mistake there would be how, how wide of a footprint that was um, for, for those hard problems. So there, there was about a year where we actually didn't ship a lot of forward features. Like we were, we were just, we were just scaling things. We were just like optimizing these systems, keep, keeping, keeping the lights on in some cases. And so maybe the mistake there would be being a little bit over ambitious with what we could do with a small team. And what we did was we tried to really first just really like narrow our focus to say, what are, what are actually the most important problems that we need to solve? We we can't do everything, and actually we can't do that much with a 10-person team at this point. Um, and then second was just really intentionally saying, it's time for us to grow. So we need to go and raise more money. We need to grow the team from 10 engineers to 50 engineers and build our team into the, the size of the surface area. One, one learning that we had early on is we... I said earlier that we built our system to be to support both live video and on-demand video, and that was an intentional choice. It was hard. Live video is especially complex. On-demand video is hard enough. But we're like, no, we're, we're gonna we want to support both modes of video, and that's kind of how we thought. We th we thought there were two kinds of video in the world: live video and on-demand video. And then in the back of our minds, there was this other type of video, which would be real-time video. Think of like Zoom, that, that that kind of synchronous video where you're literally talking to someone, or FaceTime, or those kind of things. And we didn't really think about that type of video. And the reason was the technology is totally different. Like the technology behind a Zoom call or a FaceTime call or something like that has very minimal overlap to a live stream or like watching a video on Netflix or whatever. And so we were like, yeah, we're video, we're we're street, we're a streaming video platform. We're not a real-time video platform. But the mistake there was our customers don't know the difference. Like the, the, the whole mission of Mux is to democratize video. We don't think you should have to be a video expert to stream video or to build with video. We don't think developers should have to know the difference between WebRTC and HLS or between you know video delivered with a CDN or with stun and turn servers. So it was a learning just by having customers ask us over and over, hey, why don't you support real-time video? And like, we know the answer because we're the technical experts, but the customers don't know the answer. So we realized if we actually want to be a video platform for developers, and if we actually want to democratize video, then we have to expand our footprint to real-time video as well, even though it's technically dif different, even though it's another hard problem. Um, it's, it's the only way we can really live into our mission. So what does the future look like for the product and for your team? So this year we are... There's a big focus on launching a few new products. So we are launching real-time video that just has launched this month in May. And we are launching a video player and, and a video studio, which is a way of running a live stream or capturing video in the browser. So you can actually build an application around, like a web application around capturing video. So we're kind of expanding the surface area of the product a bit more this year. The next step after that, now that we've done that expansion, is really just going to be going deep into hardening the infrastructure and scaling, focus on quality of the video, the, the quality of experience, and the global performance, just sort of those core attributes of like security and performance and scale and reliability that, that are just so important for an infrastructure platform. So that's a lot of what we're doing on the product side this year. For the team, we're growing. We're distributed at this point, so we're about half the company's Bay Area, half is not. Um, and we have a growing office in London, 
which is our European presence. So keep growing across the board, um, different teams, different locations. Exciting times. Product launches, just having live video, that's that's really great. Super excited about that. I'm curious about your experiences on um, you know remote versus in office teams. Tell me about your perspective there. Obviously, you have a distributed team, um, but, but tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, we started off being office-centric culture, and we were a little dogmatic there. We were actually like, we... For, for the first couple of years, we were like, we want everyone to be in the same office, uh, which has advantages. It has advantages in terms of building relationships with your team and communication, those kind of things. But even before the pandemic, we started hiring remotely. So we hired, our, our first step was to hire in London. So we hired a great lead of a European team just because we have a lot of customers in Europe. And then we found a couple of great people who we just couldn't say no, even though they lived in Portland and Minneapolis and elsewhere. And so we, we started growing in different locations. We had one team member move to Tahoe. Uh, and then the pandemic hit, and we just really decided to lean into distributed work. And so it's, it's, actually, gone, it's actually gone well, I think. I think there's, there's obviously pros and cons to, to both approaches. One of the advantages of distributed work is you have to work that way at scale anyway. Like when you're when you're 20 people, you really can sit around a table and you really can work that closely. When you're 200 or 2,000, you can't, um, and you have to lean into some of the ways of communicating asynchronously, communicating through writing, finding ways of really intentionally building relationships as opposed to letting them just happen accidentally around the around a cup of coffee. I think the the biggest con is. Not everyone knows each other quite as well, but even there, there are ways to 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 work on that. And so we really focus on travel, bringing people together, offsites, virtual events as well, um, which were really fun at the beginning of the pandemic, but kind of kind of lost their charm maybe <laughs> for for some of us maybe a year in, but but are still can still be important. Well, let's switch to you, John. Who influences the way that you work? Name a CEO, CTO, an architect. Really, really any person you look up to, and why. So I think I think my, my earliest influence would have been the the, the Y Combinator community, Paul, Paul Graham and others. So um, I, I read I read Paul Graham's essays in like 2006. We we did Y Combinator for actually both companies, both for Zencoder in 2010 and Mux in 2016. And I think I think there's a lot of great startup wisdom. Focus on customers. I think the the YC mantra of make something people want is. It's just super simple, but it's kind of brilliant. Um, I think another early startup influence was a guy named Steve Blank. If you've heard of like the lean startup movement, he kind of started it. So someone else popularized that term, but he kind of started it. Um, my, my, my favorite startup book early on was a book called Four Steps to the Epiphany, which is his kind of his kind of roadmap, honestly, for for building a building a product that that um, customers love. I'm kind of skeptical of business books. I I love to read and. It seems like the, the average quality of a business book is maybe lower than the average quality of a great novel or, or a, another great book. But, but there, there are some really good ones. Like my, my, my favorite author there is a guy named Patrick Lencioni, who his most famous book is Five Dysfunctions of a Team, which is just a really excellent book. It, it's an excellent model for team health and building, building productive, healthy teams. And a lot of other stuff he writes is really good. And it's, it's largely focused on building a healthy company as a way of building a successful and productive company. So we talked about a mistake earlier, but a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently? Or where would you consider taking a different approach? There's a really interesting thing where, where when we started the company, there are three core products that we wanted to build. We wanted to build video analytics, we wanted to build video streaming, and we wanted to build a video player. 
And now, six years in, we've six years in, we've built all three. But we could have sequenced them differently. I, I don't know if I would actually change the order, but I think it'd be based on hindsight. It'd be worth like scenario modeling for what if we built a player first, and then data second, and then video third, or video first, and a player second, and data third, or something else like that. So I, I, I guess I don't, I don't have a I don't have an exact answer. Partly because the decision's made, so there's, there's not a lot of use in like in second guessing it. But I think that high-level sequencing, so we, we knew what largely what we wanted to build, we knew who we wanted to build it for, um, but prioritization and sequencing is still a really, really hard problem. Well, well last question, John. So, so you're getting on a plane, and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it, they can't wait to show it off to the world, they can't wait to show it off to you, right there on the plane. What, did, what advice do you give that person, having gone down this road a bit? The first bit of advice is something that probably that person has heard before, but you can't say it enough. And it's really spend a lot of time with customers, really deeply understand customers. Um, what, what you want to find is if you have a demo and you show it off to some customers, you're going to get like 10 out of 10 people who will nod and say, oh, that's good. And they'll, they'll say nice things. But that's just because that's just because people are generally want to be encouraging of a young entrepreneur. What you really want to find is real passion. You don't want someone to say, "Oh yeah, that looks good." You want someone to say, "That would change my life. I, I can, can I buy it tomorrow? I've built an awful workaround for this problem, and this would be so much better." You really want to find passion, and so actually spend time with customers, but also also spend time with customers with self-critical eye. Make the customers convince you that what you're doing is the right thing, and I think that that lens will help you find the real hard problems and the real the, the real things they need. And then maybe on a personal level, I'd say also make sure that you're scaling yourself. If you're a startup founder, um, you you have to do really different things when you're one person or five people or 20 people or 100 people or a th- I assume a thousand people, although I'm, I'm, not, I'm not there. And your ability to grow to the next stage is really impactful for the business. So invest in yourself, invest in your learning, make, make sure that you are able to scale along with the company. Fantastic advice, John. Well, John, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Mux. Yeah, thank you. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.